0: When I started this show, I knew I'd have to cover this case. It's the most famous disappearance in recorded history. Everything we know about Amelia Earhart's last flight, combined with what we think we know and everything we don't, has given birth to a timeless mystery. But I'm here to set the record straight. Thanks to many people who've dedicated their lives to this case, we actually have a pretty good sense of what happened but that hasn't stopped the wild, obsessive speculation. Now, I won't be the first to try to put a button on this story, but I do hope I'm the last, because I think the world's most famous female pilot deserves to be remembered for more than her ending. And it just so happens, the secret to cracking the mystery begins with a better understanding of who Amelia really was. Away from the spotlight, I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. The person at the center of today's case needs no introduction. By the time she disappeared over the Pacific Ocean in 1937, she was a record-breaking pilot, teacher, public speaker, and writer with her own clothing line. Her name's Amelia Earhart. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Nope, but neither was email when it was invented in 1972. And yet today,
1: we send 347 billion
0: emails every single day. Crypto is no different. It's new, but like email, it's also revolutionary. With Kraken, it's easy to start your crypto journey with 24-7 support when you need it. Go to kraken.com and see what crypto can be. Not investment advice. Crypto trading involves risk of loss. Cryptocurrency services are provided to U.S. and U.S. territory customers by Payward Ventures, Inc., PdI DBA, Kraken. Visit PdI's disclosures at kraken.com legal slash disclosures. Before we peel back the layers of rumors and speculation, it's important to understand why Amelia Earhart's disappearance became so shrouded in mystery in the first place, because there are some legitimate reasons. So I wanna start today's episode on the afternoon of May 21st, 1937, the beginning of her final flight. Amelia is at the Union Air Terminal in Burbank, California, She's sitting in the cockpit of a custom-built twin-engine plane, a Lockheed Electra. Her co-pilot and navigator, Fred Noonan, sits in the seat next to her. Also on board is Amelia's husband, George Palmer Putnam, and her mechanic, Bo McNeely. But they're just here for the day. They'll get off once the plane touches down in Arizona tomorrow. Amelia won't be the first pilot to ever circumnavigate the globe, but she will be the first to do it at its widest point, a 30,000 mile journey over the equator. There's a lot riding on this venture. To make the trip happen, Amelia more or less mortgaged her future. Those are her words. She asked for incredible sums of money from her sponsors and pulled in favors from a few contacts in the US government, including First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. The Department of Interior even built her a brand new landing strip on a tiny island in the Pacific to make this journey even feasible. The U.S. Coast Guard is waiting for her at pit stops along the way with fuel, rations, and supplies. The stakes are high, and yet the tarmac is almost empty. The one photograph I could find from the day shows just two cars parked next to the plane. No spectators, no reporters. Not the fanfare you might expect from a world-famous pilot attempting the longest aerial flight in history. And there might be a reason for that. See, she first attempted this flight a few months ago in Hawaii. And that day, the tarmac was mobbed with reporters. But instead of a heroic takeoff, she crashed, spinning the plane on its undercarriage and breaking its landing gear. The next day, the incident was all over the papers it was humiliating. So it makes sense that she'd choose a quiet departure this time around. Around 2.25 PM, she buckles up, turns the key and takes off without a hitch. The Electra lands in Tucson the next day, but when Amelia restarts the plane to taxi over to a fueling station, there's a backfire. Flames and smoke erupt from the left engine. The damage is ultimately minimal, According to Amelia, all it needs is a good cleaning, but still, given the hiccup she experienced in early spring, you have to wonder whether some small part of Amelia regrets ever attempting this flight. If so, she doesn't show it. Once everything's under control, Fred and Amelia leave her husband and mechanic behind and head for New Orleans. From there, they fly to Miami, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, Suriname, and Brazil. By mid-June, they're in the skies over India, but it's monsoon season and the storms are powerful. The winds and rain are so strong, they peel paint off the Electra. The conditions test Amelia's strength and endurance, but she makes it through. By the time they reach Singapore, the weather has subsided and it's only set their timeline back a few days. They travel on to Australia before landing in Papua, New Guinea on June 29th. When they arrive, they're exhausted. They've flown over 22,000 miles with 7,000 miles to go before they're back in California. Amelia's ready to be done. They spend a few days in Papua New Guinea resting. The Electra receives some repairs. They know the most taxing part of their trip is still to come. For most of it, they'll be flying entirely over open water. Her next stop is Howland Island. It's where the US government built that airstrip special for Amelia's flight. The island's thin, less than a mile wide, and it's tiny, 0.6 square miles. To paint you a mental picture, imagine the island of Manhattan, cut out everything except Central Park, break that in half, shave it down a little more, stretch it out like Laffy Taffy, and drop it in the middle of the Pacific. That's Howland Island. Locating it will be hard enough. Landing safely will be Amelia's most challenging task yet. To help, there'll be a big Coast Guard ship right by the island called the Itasca. Plus, Amelia's plane is outfitted with some pretty high-tech features to help make it happen. There's two that you need to know about because they'll come into play later. First is a device called a Radio Direction Finder, DF for short. It basically listens for radio waves and determines where they're coming from based on their strength. It kind of works like a human ear. If you're in your backyard and you hear a bird chirp, you instinctively turn your head toward the bird's location based on its volume. Second, Amelia has a top of the line radio. The radio's antennas run along the top and bottom of the plane. They're her lifelines to the outside world. She only uses specific agreed upon frequencies to communicate. This means that throughout her trip, radio enthusiasts, reporters, and fans have been able to tune in and listen to her transmissions. Amelia takes off for Howland Island at 10 a.m. on the morning of July 2nd, 1937. Everyone anticipates the flight from Papua New Guinea taking around 18 hours in favorable conditions. If there are headwinds, she could be airborne for an entire day. And that would be disastrous. Because even with good winds, the Electra's gas tanks will be nearing empty by the time she reaches Howland. Howland. Fourteen hours after takeoff, sometime around midnight, the crew of the Itasca fires up the ship's spotlights and points them into the sky. There are clouds rolling in, and the lights will act as a beacon for Amelia. Coast Guard radio operators send periodic transmissions, waiting for Amelia to come into range and listening for her unique call sign, KHAQQ. A A few hours later, around 2.45 a.m., a voice comes through. It's faint, but it's on Amelia's designated frequency, and the operator can make out her call sign, K-H-A-Q-Q, so it has to be her. The voice relays something about how the weather's overcast, but it quickly fades to static, followed by hours of silence. By this point, Amelia should be approaching the island and in regular contact with the Coast Guard, but she's not and they don't receive another transmission until 6.14 a.m., more than 20 hours after takeoff. This time, the sound is loud and clear. It's Amelia. She says she's about 200 miles out, but then she does something odd. She starts whistling into her transmitter and asks the Coast Guard to take a navigational bearing on her signal. By whistling, she's giving them a strong, consistent signal for the Coast Guard to track. But this is the equivalent of Amelia calling up the Coast Guard on a cell phone and saying, hey, I'm lost, where am I? The purpose of the DF is for Amelia to find them, not the other way around. With the equipment on board each craft, what she's asking them to do is impossible. And she knows that. But what's even more strange is, from the time Amelia's voice first came in, she hasn't responded to anything the operators have said it's been a one-way conversation. It's like she can't hear them. By this point, the sun's up. The Itasca spotlights are useless now, so the Coast Guard fires black plumes of smoke into the sky, hoping she'll spot them soon. About 90 minutes later, at 7.42 a.m., Amelia calls back with this message.
1: Gas is running low. We are flying at an altitude
0: of 1,000 The signal is so strong, it practically blows out the radio operator's headphones. It sounds like Amelia is right above the ship. The guy goes outside expecting to hear the Electra's engine roaring overhead, but there's nothing. The next time Amelia's voice comes through, it's 8.45 AM, almost 23 hours after she left Papua New Guinea, well past her expected arrival. Her voice is racked with fear. She gives the Coast Guard two numbers, compass headings, and says she's flying back and forth between those two points. If her coordinates are correct, she will have to pass directly over Howland Island. But Amelia and Fred never arrive. Assuming the worst, the Coast Guard orders the Itasca to weigh anchor and search for a plane wreck. They don't find Amelia or the Electra, which isn't strange. It's a small plane and a vast ocean. Without even a general sense of where they might've come down, it's to be expected. But here's where the mystery kicks in. For the next four days, Amelia's radio continues to transmit signals, meaning her plane is not underwater.
1: They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes... Time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from ParCast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved and how long it takes to find the answers. If ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify.
0: In the days after Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan go missing, the Coast Guard fails to find any sign of the two pilots or a plane crash. But on the other side of the planet, two Americans in different states hear transmissions from a person claiming to be Amelia before news of her disappearance ever hits newspapers. The first is a Texas woman named Mabel Larimore. She picks up a transmission about 10 hours after experts estimate the Electra went down. According to Mabel, from the transmissions, she gathers that Amelia, Fred, and the Electra are all stuck on a small uninhabited island. Amelia and Fred are injured. Mabel hears Amelia say that the Electra is partially on land and partially in the water. Mabel calls a local newspaper and has a reporter listen to the transmissions, but neither she nor the reporter tell the Navy or Coast Guard. Mabel assumes that if she's hearing the signal, the authorities must be listening too. In fact, she doesn't come forward until years later when she realizes that maybe they weren't. The day after Mabel hears those transmissions, a teenage radio enthusiast in Wyoming named Dana Randolph hears Amelia again. According to Dana, the voice coming over the receiver apparently says loud and clear. This is Amelia Earhart. Ship is on a reef south of the equator. Station KHAQQ." It's a credible report because Dana heard Amelia's actual call sign. K-H-A-Q-Q, and quoted Amelia calling her plane a ship, which is how Amelia often referred to planes. And Dana's report appears to corroborate with Mabel's, despite the two living hundreds of miles apart and not knowing each other. In order for Amelia's radio to work, its batteries couldn't have gotten wet. The Electra needed to be at least partially above water, as Mabel's report suggests. There's no way Mabel would have known that, And if the plane was partially submerged, landing on a reef makes sense and is consistent with Dana's claims. But these reports aren't isolated incidents. Far from it. In the wake of Amelia's disappearance, a total of 57 reports pour in from all over the world, claiming to have heard the famous pilot broadcasting messages. A few are disproven as hoaxes, but many others can't be. You might be wondering... How is it possible for Amelia to be broadcasting radio messages from the Pacific Ocean to different corners of the world? Well, science has an explanation for that. It's thanks to a phenomenon called harmonics. In the atmosphere, radio frequencies can multiply on top of themselves to echo over huge distances. With credible accounts coming from different corners of the globe, historian and aviation expert Rick Gillespie concluded, with near certainty that Amelia managed to put the Electra down on an island somewhere and keep transmitting. Gillespie and his organization, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, have spent decades examining and investigating Amelia's case, and they've come up with a really compelling theory about what happened. To walk you through it, let's return to the morning of Amelia's disappearance and her final transmission to the Coast Guard. As the Itasca sends smoke signals into the sky, Amelia radios that she and Fred are flying back and forth on a line between two points, compass headings 157 and 337. This path should take them right over Howland Island. They believe they're close, but the problem is with fuel levels so low, they could drop out of the sky at any second. According to Gillespie and his team, shortly after broadcasting that message, Amelia and Fred spot an island. It looks nothing like Howland, but running out of time, they make a decision to try an emergency landing rather than jump. Luckily, the island has a beach and reef surrounding it, which provides a natural runway. Amelia lands the Electra on sand and coral, coming down hard enough to cause injuries. They stay in the plane and radio for help, but as the tide comes in, it starts pulling the plane out to sea. Once the radio dies, Amelia and Fred have no other choice but to abandon the Electra. They swim to shore, hoping someone, anyone, heard their messages and will find them. But after the ocean swallows the plane, the situation becomes much more dire. They're much harder to spot from the air. They're injured, without flares, food, water, or emergency supplies. They likely don't survive for more than a few days. It's a sad, tragic ending. It may not be the answer anyone wants from one of history's greatest mysteries. Gillespie's team has uncovered quite a bit of evidence supporting this version of events. They even believe they know the island Amelia and Fred landed on. Three years after Amelia and Fred's disappearance in September 1940, British workers land on a tiny island called Nikumaroro. Like most others in the South Pacific, it's part of a volcanic crater. So there's a central lagoon and a wide reef all around it. By the time the Brits set foot on shore, indigenous islanders hadn't lived there in years. So they find it strange when they stumble upon what appears to be the remnants of an old campsite and a partial human skeleton. Items scattered around the remains include bird and turtle bones, a wooden box, and a shoe. The shoe's in rough shape, but it's later found to be a woman's style from Europe or the United States. And the box is identified as a carrying case for a sextant, a special aeronautical tool used to help pilots navigate by using the stars. Now, the actual device isn't found, just the box. But Amelia's co-pilot, Fred Noonan, was one of the world's best celestial navigators. And he had a sextant with him on the trip. As for the human bones found at the campsite, there are 13 of them. After some cursory tests, it's estimated that the individual died at least four years prior, which of course predates Amelia's disappearance. But officials weren't certain, so they send the bones to Fiji. They're analyzed by a doctor and determined to be a male of European origin, not an indigenous islander. It's incredibly exciting news. But after these tests, the 13 bones go missing. All that's left are doctor's notes detailing the length of each bone. So in trying to shut the door on one mystery, another one opens. But flash forward another 80 years and forensic pathologist Richard Jantz revisits those notes. It's 2018 and osteological science has come a long way since 1940. Jantz uses new technology and a system called Mahalanobis distance to compare photographs of Amelia with the bone measurements. He evaluates the descriptions of the partial skeleton and ultimately determines that the Fiji doctor was probably wrong. He claims the bones are more similar to Amelia Earhart's skeletal structure than they are to 99% of the world's population. In his report published in the Journal of Forensic Anthropology, Jantz concludes, quote, Until definitive evidence is presented that the remains are not those of Amelia Earhart, the most convincing argument is that they are hers. And there's even more evidence to suggest he's right. Back in 1937, four radio stations in the South Pacific, thousands of miles apart from each other, picked up faint transmissions from Amelia's frequency. If you were to draw a straight line on a map from each one of these stations out in the direction of where those signals were coming from, the lines would meet just a few miles away from Nikumororo. Plus, the path Amelia told the coast guard she and Fred were flying on, the line between points 157 and 337, leads directly to Nikumororo. The island is just 365 miles south of Howland. On such an overcast day, Amelia could have easily flown past her destination without noticing. And because of the geographical features of Nikumaroro, it's not so surprising that the wreckage hasn't been found. The island is the peak of an underwater mountain with incredibly steep sides. If the tide pulled the Electra out into the ocean, the plane would have sunk tens of thousands of feet to the seabed. We can even explain why Amelia didn't answer any radio calls. A few days after she left for Howland Island, locals in Papua New Guinea found a long section of wire on the runway she used. It looked incredibly similar to the antenna for Amelia's radio receiver, the one on the underside of the Electra. Photographs of Amelia's final takeoff confirm the antenna was missing as she soared into the air. It probably got torn off by some of the rough terrain on the runway. But that means Amelia wasn't choosing not to respond. She couldn't. She wasn't receiving transmissions. She couldn't hear anything. And the answers may be that simple. I know the facts don't point to the most satisfying conclusion, especially for one of history's most enduring mysteries, especially for such an American trailblazer. But having an ending doesn't mean Amelia's life and legacy aren't worth exploring. For me, the most interesting question to ask isn't what happened, it's why. Knowing how difficult the journey would be, why did Amelia choose to stare death in the face and fly toward it? The answer is far more complicated than getting lost over the Pacific Ocean. And it's buried deep in her past. Understanding Amelia Earhart's ending begins with understanding how she moved through the world. She spent her life defying the limitations and expectations of others, starting with her family. Despite her grandfather being a well-to-do attorney and her mother growing up in Philadelphia's high society, Amelia didn't grow up with a silver spoon in her mouth. Her father struggled with alcohol and had trouble keeping steady employment, which led to the Earharts moving around a lot. So Amelia was partially raised by her rather strict grandmother, a woman who expected Amelia to act like a lady at a time where acting like a lady meant something very specific. Something Amelia wasn't. Amelia rejected gender norms from a young age. She loved sports and outdoor adventures. She came home covered in dirt and bruises. Once for her birthday, she asked her father for a twenty-two caliber pistol, which she wanted for shooting rats. She accentuated her masculine features by wearing her hair short and avoiding dresses. As she got older, she opted for ties and collared shirts, which was considered radical at the time. But for all their disagreements, Amelia and her grandmother must have been close. Because after her grandmother passed away in 1911, Amelia's whole personality changed. Afterward, she became a loner she threw herself into her studies, spending most of her time in the library. The description under one of her high school yearbook photos reads, rather viciously, the girl in brown who walks alone. At 19, Amelia enrolled in higher education. She shipped off to the Ogon School for Young Ladies in Philadelphia. It's the type of place young women were sent to to learn how to be so-called ladies of leisure. Think buildings with ivy and acres of manicured lawns complete with a lake and swans. Amelia kept a scrapbook of women who'd excelled in male-dominated fields, a female fire lookout, a police commissioner, an engineer. At one point, she rallied against exclusionary sororities on campus and got them all shut down. At 21, Amelia's world collided with the world of aviation, almost literally, At a flying exhibition in Toronto, Amelia and a friend stood in a field watching a red stunt plane make its rounds in the sky. The plane dove directly toward the girls, probably wanting to give them a scare. But while Amelia's friend ran away, Amelia stood her ground. She later said, I did not understand it at the time, but I believe that little red airplane said something to me as it swished by. By 22, Amelia just flew a plane for the first time, After that came her pilot's license, then her first record, flying higher than any female pilot before her. Then Amelia was asked to be a passenger on a flight across the Atlantic Ocean, becoming the first woman to cross the Atlantic by plane. This was a big deal at the time, but afterward, when asked if she was excited, Amelia replied by saying, excited? No, it was a grand experience, but all I did was lie on my tummy and take pictures of the clouds. I was just baggage, like a sack of potatoes. Though she only had 500 hours of flight time under her belt and was completely unfamiliar with the plane required, Amelia felt she could have piloted the plane under the right conditions. And four years later, she did just that. By 1936, Amelia's headstrong, fearless defiance led her to break tons of records. And in doing so, she'd become famous. Like, really famous. I tried to think of a modern comparison, but I'm not sure there is one. Parades in her honor, invitations from the White House, crowds of thousands gathered just to get a glimpse of her. And she was good at being in the spotlight. She gave reporters all the sound bites they needed, rattling off smart quips with a polite smile. With fame came more expectations. Like it or not, Amelia now carried the torch for an entire gender, at a time when women being able to vote was a new concept. Girls around the world plastered her face on scrapbooks. They told their teachers and parents they wanted to be her when they grew up, and Amelia cared about being a role model. She returned to her boarding school to give speeches about breaking into male dominated fields. She traveled across the country, lecturing on gender equity and social equality. She was more than a hero. She was a living legend. But that can be its own kind of trap. I can only imagine what it feels like to believe you have to live up to the hopes and dreams of an entire generation of young women. The pressure you must feel to outdo yourself again and again, taking on bigger and bolder stunts. With all of that riding on her shoulders... It's easy to understand why Amelia didn't allow herself to admit her fear or ask for help or simply slow down. And Amelia was under constraints all the time. She had speaking engagements, public appearances, interviews, and photo shoots. The expectations of fame must have stretched her thin. The more famous she got, the less time she had to devote to training for her increasingly complex stunts like the radio direction finder she used on her final flight. The technology was so complex that Amelia needed extra training just to operate it. But with her schedule, she didn't have time to study radios or the ins and outs of this system. By the time she took off from Burbank, she'd spent less than an hour learning how the DF and other radio equipment worked. In the air over the South Pacific, she didn't know how to troubleshoot it or even recognize there was a problem. And that's where this story gets complicated. See, Amelia, for all her greatness, wasn't the expert pilot we sometimes make her out to be. Don't get me wrong, she was very skilled, but truthfully, her training paled in comparison to her male contemporaries. Given the societal norms at the time and extreme pressure and schedule she was under with her newfound celebrity, that's not totally her fault, but it is a fact one that leaves some to question whether she was really ready to circumnavigate the globe. Of course, Amelia wasn't alone in the plane. Fred was there too. Like I said, he was selected because of his aerial navigation skills, estimating their position based on the sun and stars and the information coming from the radio and DF. I don't know what, if any, operational training he had on the Electra's high-tech equipment. When Amelia crashed in Hawaii, Fred was in the back of the plane with his charts and tools. So as the navigator, what was Fred's role in the tragedy? I don't know. We can't know. But at the end of the day, in the eyes of the world, this flight wasn't about Fred. It wasn't his success or failure on the line. It was Amelia's project. She was the driving force. If the pair completed the trip, parades would have been thrown in her honor. She would have been shaking hands with the president, To this day, history sometimes forgets Fred was even there. Now, I'm not here to take anything away from Amelia Earhart. She deserves all the credit in the world. She was a strong female figure who pushed the boundaries of what was possible for women. She proved her critics wrong over and over again. She continues to inspire young people all over the world to this day. And that is huge the legacy she leaves behind outside of the mystery of it all is so incredibly important. But ignoring the truth of the situation, not discussing the factors that possibly impacted this trip doesn't help anyone. What makes her most remarkable to me is that throughout her life, Amelia's priority was fulfilling her own potential. She gave herself permission to carve out a path that suited her and she did it publicly which takes an incredible amount of conviction. Her stunts make her accomplished, but her character is what makes her inspiring. Amelia once said, women, like men, should try to do the impossible, and when they fail, their failure should be a challenge to others. To which I say, challenge accepted. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. Among the many sources we used for today's episode, we found the book Amelia Lost by Candace Fleming and Finding Amelia by Rick Gillespie extremely helpful to our research. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances star Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Andrew Messer, edited by Connor Sampson, Amber Von Shassen, and Aaron Lan, fact checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Freddie Beckley and Aaron Larson. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.
1: Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers If ever. Catch a new episode of Cold Cases every Monday. Listen free only on Spotify.